You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello listeners, future Zoe and future Mac here with a brief note and disclaimer about this week's episode. This is the first of two article episodes that we'll be doing for Pride Month this year. The original intent was that, like our other article episodes, we'd cover multiple articles in a single episode, but that ended up not happening. We spend this entire episode on one article that we both really liked, so we'll be doing a second Pride Month special in a couple weeks for the other articles we found. And as a disclaimer, we should note that we are discussing sexuality in this episode, of course, and to a certain degree, politics as well, because those are intermingled basically in any time and place you live in. So if that's not your thing, this would be a good time to pull out and go listen to one of our other episodes instead, or just, you know, hold on to your horses and wait. Also, a less content-based disclaimer for our audiophile listeners. Something seems to have gone wrong with my audio when we were recording this. I think Audacity switched to using my laptop mic instead of the proper one for some reason. So my sound for this episode is a bit low quality. Sorry about that. Alright, so with all of that out of the way, please enjoy the upcoming episode and happy Pride! Hello everyone, I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with my co-host Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University, and we are medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into your TTRPG narrative, your LARP, your whatever creative thing you were working on. That is what we do. Today, we are going to be doing a pride episode for you guys. I am so excited to jump into this stuff. Also, forgive me if my voice sounds a little weird. I am getting over a nasty cold, so I still have sort of like this Jennifer Lawrence tenor to my voice. I lost my voice entirely, and then it slowly came back, and I slowly sounded more and more like Jennifer Lawrence. And I'm coming back to myself, but there's still a little bit of it there. Anyway. I have no idea what Jennifer Lawrence sounds like. (laughs) Really? You've never seen anything Uh, with with her in it? She was in The Hunger Games, right? Yeah, she was in The Hunger Games. I didn't see the movie, but I know that that's, that's the, that is the fact I know about her. She, yeah, she did a good job in the Hunger Games. Anyway, point is, forgive my voice if it sounds a little weird. Anyway, before that, if you would like to jump into our community, please feel free to do so. We would love to have you there. We've got a Discord. We've got all of our social media, which we love getting tagged and called out by you guys. So that's going to be on our Facebook, Instagram. Mastodon, Tumblr, Twitter, all of the above. You can find us. We are out there on the interweb. So concerned about inviting callouts. That sounds dangerous. If we're being inaccurate, I want to be called out. That's a good point. I feel like we invite a lot of callouts because we don't know everything. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> I think I have an unexamined assumption that an internet callout is going to be inaccurate. You know, that's fair. Don't call us out if you're going to be inaccurate about it. How's that? Yeah, there you go. Disclaimer. Anyway, we would love to hear from you. So please do look us up. Find us on there. You can find all of these links down in our show notes. We also have a Patreon. If you would like to support the show, we have extra special bonus content there. And your wonderful donations help keep this show up and running because we live in a society and there is inflation and... 
our hosting servers and things like that are getting more expensive because of those things. So thank you very much. It does mean a lot to us. We love doing this and your support does directly help us keep going. So that's, we're really grateful. All right. But with all of that said, let's jump straight in to our pride episode for June. Very exciting. We did one of these last year. Year before last, I think. Year before I last. Think we did oh. one last year. Oh, we, we missed a year. Anyway, hopefully we'll make it an annual thing. We have done one before. We have done one before, but the trick is with medieval sexuality is that there's not a lot written on it except for condemning anything that is not Christian heterosexuality. And sometimes even that, if it's not done under the right circumstances for the right reasons. True. Presumably in the right position and under the right phase of the moon or whatever. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of rules. And it's not even like the government in your bedroom. It's just the church in your bedroom or quite frankly, your neighbors in your bedroom who can't keep their long noses out of your, out of your windows. Yeah. And considering the time period we're speaking about, I feel like church and government have a lot of overlap. Very, very much so. But anyway, we we jumped straight into it. But point is, we will be talking about medieval sexual identity. And we'll be doing this in the format of an article episode, which seemed to go over quite well with you guys when we had done that before. So Mac and I each picked out a variety of articles on medieval queerness or sexual identity. We're going to do our absolute best to be careful with these terms, but you also have to recognize, you know, when you look into these medieval things that like lesbian wasn't really a word. Gay was not really a word. Trans was definitely not a word. Others, you know, various forms of identity, non-binary wasn't a thing. So it can be very weird to try and transpose these terms and identities on medieval people who weren't conceptualizing themselves like that. So we are going to do our utmost in speaking about these things very carefully, but it's one of those weird realms that's difficult to talk about. You could argue that non-binary was definitely a thing because it's a broad enough term that it covers anyone who's outside of the gender binary, which is something that's existed through all of human history. That's but it true. wasn't a term. It wasn't a term. Yeah. People did not themselves say, I am non-binary. Right. And issues like, are you using the right pronouns? Like when, when they've been dead for a thousand years, it, there's no way to know. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. And the primary sources and the articles about those primary sources will often disagree on what those <laughs> pronouns are supposed to be. And you have to interpret it for yourself. And honestly, there's no way to know you're getting it right. Exactly, exactly. So all of that said, we are coming at this with the goal of respecting these individuals in however they presented. And should we get these wrong or not know all of the scholarship about that, please give us grace in those things. <laughs> so when we first talked about bringing this up, I think, Mac, you suggested digging deeper into medieval lesbianism. And so... I focused on that in the articles that I looked at, but I'm curious to see what you focused on. I do have one about medieval lesbianism, but I also have one about gender roles. Ooh, okay. I wanted to try and find, because we've mentioned a few times, like, 
oh, you know, they were probably lesbian nuns. Like, that's yep. something that's come up. Like, yep. surely that was going on in medieval convents. So I wanted to see if we could find anything specific about that. I couldn't find anything specific about that, but I did Ooh. find an interesting article on the way. Oh, you did I find did. something. Okay. I did find a couple things about lesbianism in convents. So it's very, very difficult to find. But did you want to jump into your article first on medieval gender roles as sort of an overview before we jump straight into the lesbianisms? Oh, it's not It's not an overview. My oh, no. One is about a specific text. Oh, okay. Got it. One of my articles kind of gives an overview about talking about queerness in the medieval age. So we can start with that one. Okay. Sounds good. Let me pull it up. So this one is called Lesbian Like and the Social History of Lesbianisms by Judith Bennett. Uh, Excuse me. What? Did I you have already that do one. that one? Oh, f- I sent you the title and everything. I'm sorry. Oh, no. We did. Well, I guess we'll just do it at the same time. All right. Yeah, we'll just talk about this one. Oh, to be fair, listeners, there are not that many articles on medieval lesbian history at all. I'm sorry. (laughs) You did. You totally did. Anyway. Okay. Does that still work for you? Yeah, we can still do it. Okay, cool. Oh, I feel so bad now. All right. So, yes, this is Lesbian Like and the Social History of Lesbianisms by Judith Bennett. And I think, in part, the reason that we both, like, gravitated towards this text is because it is so comprehensive. It covers so much. And so I found a couple other articles about lesbianism in medieval society, and they were all cited here by, by Judith. So it was just easier to go to this text. I went to this one as soon as I saw it on my list of results because I'm familiar with Judith Bennett's work. She is the author of the definitive book on medieval English alewives, and so I've used her as a source in my dissertation. That is so cool. And so I already knew she was a good uh, good scholar, and she has a great writing style. Yes. Also, please note that this is not Judith Butler. Both are like yeah, I had gender the same historians. Thought. Yeah, this is not Judith Butler. Different person. <laughs> this is Judith Bennett. Different scholar. So do do keep that in mind. So real quick, here's a basic rundown of the article, and we'll break out into it as we go. So the first chunk is just current readings of lesbianism in scholarship, like how different scholars look at what lesbianism is, or I hate the word lesbianism. I think she brings that up. I think she does. But anyway, lesbians in history, how do scholars think about that? I mean, I think it's a fine word, but you'd have to ask the people of Lesbos exactly how, True. how okay it is. Fair. Well, it's sort of like like transgenderism. It's like it's not really an ism. Oh, it's the, it's an identity. Yeah, it's yeah, the, it's okay, the ism. Like just say lesbian, you know. But anyway, yeah. The next chunk is the problem with these sources, with medieval sources in particular, of like the fact that they're written by men, written by elites, like elite women, etc., things like that. The next chunk is the difference between men loving men and women loving women in the Middle Ages, because believe it or not, that was vastly societally different. And if you are, for instance, a part of the queer community, you might already recognize this, like women loving women culture and men loving men culture is very, very different, even within the queer community itself. So all that being said, like it's even more so in the Middle Ages. So we'll talk about that. Then we get into Bennett's proposition of the lesbian-like and what that means. The problem with the term lesbian in medieval contexts, 
the history of the word lesbian, which is actually really cool, an argument for using the word lesbian, and then sort of defining lesbian-like. Then finally, we'll go into some lesbian-like accounts, and then we'll conclude. So that's sort of an overview of what we're running into. I, I thought that might be helpful because she does cover so much. Yeah. Like, it's an extensive article. It's almost, it's like 30 pages, 40 pages. It's long. It's a big article. Something like that. Yeah. 24 pages. 24 pages. Yeah, it's, it's, it's up there. So anyway, without further ado, we will jump into the introduction and current readings of lesbianism in scholarship. Would you like to start off, Mac, or shall I? I'll start off. I have bits highlighted that I, I thought were worth directly quoting. Perfect. And one of those is the first paragraph, so I'll just read that. Yeah, I did the first two paragraphs, so go for it. I'll hand it over to you for the second paragraph. All then. right. All right. So it starts, In queer studies, social history is, quote, queer, unquote. Gay and lesbian histories abound with insightful analyses of texts produced by the powerful and privileged, but they are relatively poor in scholarship about the ordinary lives of average people. I offer here a proposal that might adjust this balance a bit. The rich insights brought by intellectual, cultural, and literary studies of same-sex love are invaluable, but I seek to complement these with more complete understandings of the same-sex relations of people who were more real than imagined and more ordinary than extraordinary. For example, I have been delighted to read in recent years about how medieval theologians conceptualized, or failed to conceptualize, same-sex relations between women, about how medieval nuns might have expressed same-sex desire in their kissing of images of Christ's wound, about how a lesbian character might have lurked in the 13th century Roman de Salence, a story with a cross-dressed heroine. That's, it's French again, so it's spelled Roman de Silence, but I think that's <laughs> how you're supposed to, I think it's Roman de Silence. And about how a 14th century Parisian play explored the meanings of accidental marriage between two women. But I want more. I want to know about the actual practices and lives of ordinary women, more than 90% of medieval women, who never met a theologian, contemplated Christ's wound, heard a romance, or even saw a Parisian play. This challenge is not peculiar to either women's history or medieval history. Women wrote less, their writings survived less often, Sappho's works are the classic example, and they were less likely than men to come to the attention of civic or religious authorities. The medieval problem is bleak and simply stated, and I'm going, I'm jumping to the next page here. Yeah, I noticed you're skipping chunks of that paragraph, so I'm just kind of rolling with it. The medieval problem is bleak and simply stated. We can find information about medieval lesbian practices in the writings of theologians and canonists, and context here, not quoting her, but that's usually in, like, condemning it. Some yep. very suggestive literary texts, and that's things like, is it Marjorie Kemp? I mean, I feel like that's not as suggestive. I I, was, I thought she meant more like the, uh, the, the ones play? with cross-dressing and stuff. Yeah, fair enough, like that. And even in a few artistic representations. But if we want to write about actual women whom extant sources explicitly associate with same-sex genital contact, we have, as best I can tell, about a dozen women for the entire medieval millennium, all of them from the 15th century, and all of them either imprisoned or executed for their activities. This is material for only a very modest social history, and no matter how carefully we scour the religious and cultural remains of medieval Europe, it leaves us with a haunting problem. 
Where were the women who loved other women, and how can we now recover their histories? So, with this introduction, I think she points out a very, very clear problem here, not only, like, mm -hmm. with the explicit text itself, like, like she said, we have, like, a dozen queer women explicitly Yeah, they're all named. from, like, the same period, they're for yeah. the same reason. Exactly. So, number one, that's a problem. And number two, all of the writings about them that we have that are so explicit are condemning them. There's no affirming nature of lesbian love or women loving women love, which is quite frankly just a very depressing view of lesbianism in the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's one of the things I ran into when I was trying to pick articles for this is that like, all of the articles, or at least a, a vast quantity of the articles that were about, like, actual queer people in the Middle Ages were about, like, trials and executions. Yep. And I was like, that's going to be a downer. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is kind of a shitty episode. Yeah, it's just. And so I really like her suggestion here that there is a vast majority of medieval women who had some kind of, shall we say, queerness to them. And we're going to get into what that queerness looks like when we get into what she means by lesbian-like. And then finally, the other thing that she's going to get into shortly that I'm just going to call out ahead of time is we as medievalists, and hopefully as inclusive medievalists, love to imagine that certain writings maybe have more homoeroticism in them or more same-sex love in them than quite frankly, we can prove are actually there. And these are great critical readings. Like these are fantastic critical readings. But that is what they are. They are 21st century critical readings of a medieval text. And we cannot know for sure whether they have same sex written into them. Like is that is that written into the text? Or is that us reading it into the text? Is that us seeing it in the text? I feel once you get like a certain depth into the world of lit crit, like what you're seeing in the text is more about what you're bringing into it. Exactly. Because I've heard a lot of papers and read a lot of articles where people are going on about very, like, esoteric things. And bringing that back to a reading of the text, I'm like, okay, like, this argument you have is internally consistent, and I <laughs> guess it makes sense, but it is all based on part of one word. Right, exactly, exactly. One of my favorite examples of this actually is a reading, a feminist reading, not feminist, was it feminist? I think it was a feminist reading of Beowulf in which they argue that when Beowulf like wrenches Grendel's arm off, he is effectively castrating Grendel and it is a like phallocentric act in of itself. I think I've heard that. So there's that one. I'm not, I'm, I, I don't think that's in the text. I can't quite buy that one. And then there's also readings of how like shield chafing comes from like a shield and a scythe and how these are symbols of fertility. And these go back to like very esoteric ideas of what like fertility gods looked like before the Anglo-Saxons were the Anglo-Saxons and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, damn, what a reading. But also, you're getting that from two words, which you've translated three different times. And it's shield chafing is just the introduction to this text. That's it. He doesn't really come up again. To be fair, there are analogs for shield chafing and other related texts. So. Uh, right. 
That argument's one I've heard done well. That's fair. That's fair. But yeah, like the idea that uh, that Grendel's arm is also his phallus and we're castrating him and his manhood is gone and how he's like, basically the argument was sort of like Grendel is the incel of the community and that's why he's not like integrated. And so he has to come into Heorot as the, like the heart of the hall to rip it apart and destroy it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I like this reading, but I don't know if it's in the text. Yeah, I feel like you've got you've got something going on with you and you're yeah. bringing that to yeah. the text. And like it's a great theme, but <laughs> Some of them are just very, very obscure. Like the, the other article I have. Future Mac here. We don't end up presenting this article either in this episode or a future one. So you're not gonna hear from it, and I'm not gonna give you the title or the author. Because what would be the point? Other than to, like, mock their lit-crit analysis, which I think it's better to leave them anonymous for that. Does have a point that I didn't quote because I, I for the reason I'm about to say, because it also gets a bit lit-critty. And at one point it's like, and we have to remember that all of the words used here are made up of sounds that are made by bodies. And I was like, that's... I guess, but that's all <laughs> words, bro. That's all of them. All of the words are sounds made by bodies. That's that's how sounds work. Oh my yeah. gosh. Well, except sign language, because that's a gesture made by bodies. But still, it's a language made by a bot. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes people are making these points, and I'm like, I mean, yeah, but I'm not sure if that tells us anything about like the actual like yeah. text. It's like when you're, you're rules lawyering it down to the word, like, two, you know? And it's like, okay, all right, back off there a little bit, broski, you know. I don't know if that's in the text. I don't think we have to go that deep. But anyway, point is here, as medievalists, we like to do that. And so Bennett makes a very good argument that, like, there were a lot more queer medieval women who existed that we just don't have texts about, which is why we sort of have to expand our scope of what queerness was or looked like, rather than go lit crit on these, you know, original documents and texts. So Bennett's objections here to basically all of these wider readings. My objections are twofold. First, I want to participate in the creation of histories that can have meaning for those women who today identify as lesbians, bisexuals, queers, or otherwise. This search has parallels in the social histories of other minorities, and it speaks to the emancipatory possibilities of history. In its best forms, history transcends the antiquarian impulse, seeking, of course, to understand the past in its proper contexts, but also seeking to play with the ways in which the past illuminates the present and the present illuminates the past. And my note here was that this speaks to precisely what we do on the podcast and why it's so important to be inclusive in your games and why realism, you know, quote unquote, is a kind of a really stupid thing to aim for when it comes to TTRPGs, LARPs, like any kind of fantasy or sci-fi game, because like, it's fantasy. You can put racism in your game, but don't justify it by saying it's realistic. Don't justify non-inclusivity based on realism to your idea of what the past looked like. Right. Like, if you start saying, like, oh, well, you know, it's just historically accurate that in the realm of... 
this is what it was like. I'm, I'm, you invented the realm of blah, 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 my man. Right. You decide what's <laughs> historically accurate. Like, the goal is not realism, it's verisimilitude. Like, Precisely. instead of making it correspond to non-fictional reality, you just have to make it consistent with itself. Exactly, exactly. And so take all the inspiration that you would like, including on very difficult topics from medieval history. But like Bennett says here, the goal of studying the past in an inclusive way is to illuminate the past and the struggles that people in the past face, but also to illuminate the present and how we can behave and change our ways of thinking in our own games and in the present and in our own scholarship. So I just really liked that note and I wanted to add that in there. Do you want to speak to her second point? Yes, Ah, but first, Ah. something that uh, occurred to me, speaking of inclusivity, listeners may note this this article doesn't talk a whole lot about transgender issues. Like it usually says like lesbian, bi, gay, and queer. That's not intentional exclusionism. That's because this article is more than 20 years old. Uh, Yeah. That wasn't as widely talked about as it is now. So it's probably just slipping below the radar. I don't Mm -hmm. think she's intentionally leaving anyone out. Right. That's why I really like queer as a catch-all term in a positive way. I mean, that is the point of it. Right. So anyway, on to her second point. Yeah. Okay. So I just summarized this instead of quoting it directly. So if you want to read any direct quotes from it, please do. Sure. Basically, she says, another reason that all of this is important is because scholars often bring heteronormative assumptions to the table and end up ignoring things like, as we mentioned, the possible homoerotic relationships between medieval nuns, which is both of these are her examples, not mine. Or reasons that unmarried common women in medieval communities might prefer being unmarried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and essentially, she says that different scholars have different views on this. Some scholars kind of give the view that being a nun was like a refuge from men, and you can just be celibate and happy, and there's there's no sexuality there, and it's just great. I mean, technically, half of those could be true. There are very few men, and you might be happy there. Right, precisely. But is that due to the fact that there are no men, or is this due to <laughs> blah, blah, blah? And, and you know, other scholars say, like, no, many women who went into convents had no choice but to do so. And like many things, the truth is in the middle. Like, yes, people were pressured into convents. That's a thing that happened. Right, exactly. Ophelia was. So... What Bennett is trying to say here is that, like many things, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and a lot of different scholars bring their own ideas here to bear. So she states, Women's history must not continue along this road, simply must not continue to view women from whatever time or place through such a distorting heteronormative lens. Basically like, oh yeah, if you were in a monastery or a convent, then... You were safe from men, and there was no sex. And it's like, okay, cool, but you're not even considering any kind of queer desire anywhere in this. So I feel like one of those major assumptions that she's pointing out people make is that there are no men here would also mean there is no sex here. Exactly. There's not a line between those things. Right, exactly. So keep that in mind as we go. And now we get into her section, which kind of talks about the differences between male queer sexuality in the Middle Ages and female queer sexuality in the Middle Ages. 
I like the list of possible reasons she gave that other scholars have brought up why male homosexuality seems to have gotten more attention. If I may. Yes, please. All right, so the issue that she's talking about is that medieval sources that discuss male homosexuality, usually, as we said, to condemn it, often, like, ignore female homosexuality or gloss over it as unimportant or even explicitly, like, assign a lesser penalty. Like, yep. in works that hand out penalties, they'll go, like, okay, for a man to sleep with another man, you have to do this. For a woman to sleep with another woman, it's, like, half as bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, it's penitentiary stuff. Previously floated explanations by other scholars, any or all of which may be true to some degree, include the following. <laughs> Option one. People were primarily concerned about female sexuality in the context of reproduction, rather than as a sin in itself, like male homosexuality was. And lesbian sex produces no children, so it's not relevant. And her words here are, it's relatively unproblematic because there are no children as a result. Yeah. I just, I, I right. like it's that. Not, it's not going to screw up anyone's, yeah. like, inheritance. You're good. Whatever. Don't worry about it. And, and to be fair, I think I think there's also a lot of truth in that. Like, if, if you discovered, let's just say, for instance, if you're a king, you discover your queen has been, like, diddling one of the harem or, like, a consort or whoever, and it's another female noblewoman, then you as the king might be like, oh... Okay, whatever. Whereas if your queen is diddling the page boy or another nobleman, that's that's like, oh, shit. suddenly, like, if you get yeah, pregnant. That's a succession crisis. Right, exactly. Like, the entire nation is now thrown into turmoil. So, in a way, lesbianism in the Middle Ages was a lot less problematic than heterosexual infidelity. Sure. This does, however, rely on the idea that, like, women are being accorded, like, a different set of rules than men. Correct. Because homosexual male encounters also do not produce children. Correct. Unless there's some new trick that I'm not aware of. Yep. Which, apropos of little, I feel like it could be really interesting to include that in a and d game. Like, people are just what, chill. What, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lord. Do as you will. Go with my blessing. But just just the sheer idea that like, oh, you can do whoever so long as you don't cause a succession crisis. I think that could be really cool as a basis of society for some nation somewhere. Anyway, that's one of the things that she cites. Option two is that it was not considered to count as sex unless there was a dick going into someone, which is why some texts take it more seriously when the women in question have a dildo. Yep. Also correct. Yep. Like, if, if you were the woman, and we'll, we'll get into this, if you were the woman topping another woman and you had and used a dildo, you could have been punished as a man, essentially. But the woman who was being penetrated would be punished as a woman for sodomy. Yeah, the, the top and bottom roles were, if anything, even more gendered in the past yep. than they are today. Correct. So that's another one. Option three is like option two, but the important thing isn't the dick, it's the sperm. Yes. Her term is the spermatic economy of medieval understandings of sex. And that is to say, since no sperm is spilled, you're kind of good to go. Yes. And to be fair, that's not her term. That is apparently a quotation from Harry Custer and Raymond Cormier, if you want to know more about that. So there you go. Another option. And the fourth and final option is... 
as a side effect of misogyny, the people writing these texts just kind of forgot to think about women. <laughs> Which, like, I'm not surprised, to be honest. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to read her next paragraph because I feel like that explains a lot of it. Go for it. Too often these explanations construe a tiny group of authors as representing a broad medieval reality, reconstructing medieval attitudes about same-sex love between women, mostly from the idea of clerics. That is, the most male and most sexually anxious segment of medieval society. And the most likely to be able to turn on dead. Indeed. And I was just struck by this idea of, first of all, at clerics being like, the most sexually anxious of all, like, D&D classes. Yeah, but they are. That's accurate. fucking hilarious to me. Yeah, I like, highlighted that same part. It's so good. But also just the idea, I think there's something really interesting about the idea of men being the most sexually anxious group of society. And I think in the modern day, if I may, I think a lot of, for instance, white conservative men are very sexually anxious. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I think men still are the most sexually angry. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Especially straight cis men. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Just look at where we are, for instance, in America right now about governing and creating laws surrounding sex, whether it's like drag, whether whether young women can say period, not even women, young girls, middle school girls can say the word period in schools, or just how people present blah, 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 blah. So I don't know. I was really grabbed by this idea that men in general are the most sexually anxious group in society and particularly religious men as the most sexually anxious group. And I feel like that's very, very true, both in the modern day and for sure in the medieval day. And we'll get into that. But the idea of governing and controlling sexual activity is shown very, very clearly here. And women can kind of slide under the radar because of that, because men are focused on the actions of other men rather than on what women are doing. That same, like, sexual anxiety isn't just part of laws. You see it in in the modern age. I mean, you see it trickle down to, Mm -hmm. like, regular society. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of, like, how straight cis men grow up. Yes. So if you think of, like, regular-ass teenage boy, like, his he's going to have concerns like, are people going to assume I'm gay? Mm-hmm. Is my girlfriend necessarily faithful to me all the time? Mm-hmm. Am I going to uh, be seen as like having lost my virginity at an appropriate age? Mm-hmm. Like all of these like very sexually centered anxieties. And I think that's part of that whole that whole thing is those anxieties from the conservative leadership positions right. kind of trickle down to everyone so that it's part of people's brains at a young age absolutely absolutely and it's also interesting to me how there's such a focus on men being sexual creatures and women being taught that men are sexual creatures when anybody can be asexual women are also sexual creatures like eh, people are people this whole (laughs) idea that like men have to pursue and women have to be pursued exactly exactly and men should go out and conquest as much as they can but if a woman has a high body count she is lesser yeah i was good i was gonna bring up the body count thing but i forgot because i was distracted by the lawnmower yes so all things that like tie into 
what goes on into like ignoring women and lesbianism in medieval texts, but also something to keep in mind as you are, you know, creating world building, things like that. Like, hey, are you carrying any of those things over in your world? And are you doing so knowledgeably? Because I think you absolutely can make this sort of a, a thing to dismantle in your game, but please don't carry it over like without thinking about it. Yeah, and I think that I think her term sexually anxious is really helpful yeah. here because it, it really does encapsulate like the issue. Also, I really like the idea of an asexual cleric who just like walks through the world like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. And he gets he gets a little bit anxious, he gets social anxiety anytime anybody like vaguely flirts with him, or if so, like one of the party members wants to go in a brothel, he's like, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, man. I'm okay. And he just he's sexually anxious about it. I feel like you're just describing Paul. <laughs> like the apostle? Yeah. <laughs> but he was ace, wasn't he? He, he wrote about it. I have not heard this argument. What, isn't one? Of, isn't like his argument for marriage is that like, oh, it's better if everyone were like me and just suppress their sexual desires. But like, if if you if you can't, then like, I guess you can get married. Future Mac here. I apologize for the way past Mac phrased that. That is not an accurate description of asexuality. Anyway, back to Zoe explaining what this bit of the Bible is that I'm half remembering because she actually knows this stuff. Oh, there is a passage, yes, where he basically says some people don't have those desires. And he basically affirms asexuality as a thing, literally in the scripture, which I don't know why anybody, like, no, I've never heard that ever in a Bible study. I wonder why. Anyway. Really? That's one of the, like, three things I know about Paul. Yeah, he affirms this, and people have read it to be like, oh, this is where nuns and monks came from. It's like, Paul wrote about it. It's like, no, he didn't say go and join a convent. He said, some people don't have sexual urges, but if you do, get married. Yeah, and he put himself in that first category, didn't he? I am not sure. I don't recall at the moment, but I, I would, right, I, I mean, check. probably. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Fun fact. Paul's an ace cleric. There we go. New NPC for your campaign. <laughs> Back to the article. The observations and speculations of this clerical minority are certainly impressive, but their worldview too often becomes, in modern interpretations, the medieval worldview. Mm -hmm. Again, this goes back to our idea of trying to depict realism, quote unquote, in your games. Like, I think, personally, I think George R. R. Martin falls into this category where... He writes a very grim, dark world where women are oppressed. Are there any queer women in his works? There's gay men. Well, I haven't, I haven't read those books since the most recent one came out. So obviously I've forgotten all of it by now <laughs> because that was over a decade ago, George. <laughs> if I see him at the nebulas, I'll let him know. I'm sure everyone lets him know those. So he might get offended <laughs> if you bring it up. What's this game developer doing yeah anyway i think that he falls into this trap um in game of thrones song of ice and fire all of the above tolkien obviously falls into this trap in the lord of the rings and all of his i works. think it's possible tolkien just didn't know what gay anything was well no that's not true yeah, he was a he soldier went, in world war he was he a soldier he went he to boarding school <laughs> Don't tell me he didn't know what a queer was. All right, he may have not known what <laughs> lesbians were. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, Lord. Anyway, this point about basically, oh, what we have written is the medieval world. Like, no, 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 no. There's a whole massive chunk of void that we just don't have documents on. Yeah. So again, like, acknowledge that. Like, notice where your blind spots are. Read between the lines. Don't get too uptight and serious about making a realistic, quote-unquote, game. Yeah. And I think Bennett is right here when she says that what we think of as the medieval worldview is really just the church's worldview. Because almost everything we had is we have is filtered through the church in some way. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Shall we keep moving? Bennett mentions that... Like, she goes back to the thing that Zoe mentioned earlier, that people read into texts and maybe what they're finding isn't there. Like, it's hard to define it. Mm -hmm. And I thought this fairly brief paragraph was pretty interesting in that it name drops. So I'm going to... Oh, yeah, yeah, we get a little bit of spice here. Bennett does not shy away from calling out other scholars and authors. Oh, well, she doesn't do that either, but I meant name dropping of medieval figures. Oh, hell yeah, go for it. Even better. Literary and cultural scholars have also responded in creative ways to the virtual absence of actual women from the sources of medieval lesbianisms. That is a hard word to say, I'll give you that. Yeah. In their playful and provocative readings of medieval texts, these critics have found homoerotic possibilities not only in the sources cited at the beginning of this essay, but also in the music of Hildegard of Bingen. Which is really funny to me, because Hildegard explicitly is like, no lesbians allowed. Which is doubly funny, because I found another article arguing that she was in a troubled lesbian relationship oh with my one of gosh. the younger nuns in her abbey. So many layers. <laughs> we have a lot of letters from her that are extremely upset that this particular nun had been transferred to a different abbey. Oh, no. And, like, the way she's writing about her is suggestive. Wow. I mean, again, this makes sense. If you have a lot of internalized, you know, homophobia, mm-hmm. you're going to be the one who's the loudest about saying, like, no, no queer, no queer sex in, in my convent. Nope, not me. Nuh-uh, not here. So that makes sense. Anyway, so in the music of our favorite Hild- Hildegard, yes. In the piety of the mystic... Oh, fuck, I forgot to look up how to say this. Roll with it. Hadwich, maybe? It's a oh, yes. H-A-D-W-I-J-C-H. Hadwick? Hadwich? Hadwich of Brabant. In the admonitions of the anonymous author of Holy Maidenhead, in the ragings of Marjorie Kemp, and even in the cross-dressing of Joan of Arc. Although these analyses offer insightful commentaries on how we might better imagine the sexual mentalities of the Middle Ages, even the best of them can give me pause. As literary criticism, these readings reach plausible conclusions, but as guides to social history, they are considerably less convincing. Again, going back to our little... (laughs) Our beginning opening where we criticize medievalists and scholars in general for reading a little too far into some of these texts. I will say that whatever Marjorie Kemp has going on is definitely queer. Yes. In in the broad, broad definition of queer, which includes sexuality. Yeah. But I mean, because like one of one of the things that she's known for is that she is super horny for Jesus. Yep. Yeah. Who... I'm not sure that counts as, like, a heterosexual relationship because he's not fully human. Uh, yeah, I don't... So I would argue that is queer. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely, yes. And what's more, like there are there are several instances where and there are instances in medieval texts where it's encouraged for nuns to consider Christ their husband, even though like the analogy is that Christ is the groom and the church the church is his bride. Not Well, I mean nuns the, are part I, of the church, mm, so it's Okay, but Mac, it's still being taught. I have heard it from the mouths of youth pastors that young women, young girls, should consider Jesus their husband until they get married. Like, their boyfriend. Like, Jesus is their boyfriend. That's very concerning. Yes. Yes. Like, this is still something that is actively taught. So, I don't know. Congratulations if you're condoning making Jesus your boyfriend. You're encouraging queer relationships. I feel like that's extra hypocritical in that (laughs) if these same pastors found out that the women under their care were dating a different Middle Eastern Jewish man. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel gosh. like they wouldn't like that at all. We've got some spicy no, takes today. Okay. <laughs> oh boy, I feel like we should put a disclaimer at the front of this episode. Like, warning, we're talking about sexuality. We are going to talk about political things as well. Discourse, church things, all of the above. I mean, it's really hard to talk about the church without bringing up political stuff. Well, especially since you have all these horrible (laughs) anecdotes about your time with these pastors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Shall we jump into what Bennett describes as a lesbian-like? Yes. So, first of all, Bennett says that she doesn't want to discount any of this scholarship which for all her calling out of specific authors, I genuinely do think that she does want to compliment all of this scholarship because like, she's very clear that she appreciates and enjoys and finds value in and scholarship in every, all of the things that have been cited. So I, I think she's very genuine in, in this endeavor. But she says that we can do better in reading about and researching medieval lesbians just in general. And so she sees this as a compliment to all of this research. So to approach the social history of lesbianisms in the Middle Ages, I suggest that we try broadening our perspective to include women whom I have chosen to call lesbian-like. Women whose lives might have particularly offered opportunities for same-sex love. Women who resisted norms of feminine behavior based on heterosexual marriage. Women who lived in circumstances that allowed them to nurture and support other women. Yeah, so just saying like, all right, we if we define lesbian as like, we have to know for certain that this woman has had sex with another woman, then we've got like, nobody because we don't have, right. we can't prove that about virtually anyone right. in the Middle Ages except for those like dozen people. Exactly. And that also, to add on to that, if, if you only define a lesbian as someone who has had sex with another woman, then like that, first off, you can have a woman who identifies as straight have sex with another woman. It's been done. And there are lesbians in the present day all around the world who know their sexual identity, who are quote unquote, still virgins who have not had sex at all. There are lesbians who have only had sex with men, you know, because of social constraint. Like to say that the definition of lesbian is only constrained by sexual conduct is just so straight up wrong. And so she gets into that as well. But I, I want to Yeah, I was going to say, that. like, that's, that's in her next paragraph. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. But yeah, the idea of lesbian-like is to go like, all right, 
we cannot prove that this woman in history was a lesbian, but we can say, like, there are lesbian-esque things Correct. about her life. Yeah. Which, how did you take that as a term? Because for me, as as a medievalist, as a historian, as a writer in general, I really, really like this because I feel like very, very often, even in modern queer books, there's such a pressure to be inclusive and to just to straight out say like, oh, yeah, this character's a lesbian and to frame that very, very explicitly when there are so many other ways of presenting as queer or identifying as queer, non-binary, lesbian, gay, whatever, that aren't explicit. And there are so many people who can be served by having that experience of, oh, well, maybe I'm queer in some way, but I don't know what that looks like or how that's defined yet. But I can at least get a sense of that and have an identity in that one way or another. So I really like that as a term. And I like that it's broadened. But I want to hear how how you read that in particular. No, I agree. I, I also think it's, I think introducing this term is a good idea, because it establishes a kind of a bigger tent by which we can understand these things. And it's, I think it fills a useful niche in that it's mm-hmm. not exactly the same thing as saying queer, because it specifies like, okay, we're, we're talking about women, women. women. Yeah. But this also isn't going to be delimited by whatever current discourse is going around Precisely. about who qualifies as a lesbian. Precisely. It works this very, very well. like Yeah, it works it's very, very well for historical cases and doing historical research on queer identities, which I think works really well. And fun fact, and I, I won't read this entire paragraph, but lesbian is an older word than gay, which I yeah, really Yeah, I was surprised like. by that too. Yeah, so she says here that Obviously, lesbian comes from Lesbos, the island. Oh, wait, are you are you skipping over the paragraph where she talks about, like, a lesbian being a troubled term in the current... Oh, discourse? if you want to read that one, go for it, yeah. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there is one sentence <laughs> that I, I think we would be doing the readers a disservice if we left this out of our reading, and I, I'm sure you know which one I mean. Enlighten us. All right, so in discussing the term lesbian and her personal relation to it, Bennett says the following. To me, it still speaks powerfully about the revelation of self I felt when I first had sex with another woman in 1973. God bless. And I was like, man. You're putting this in your your article? Like... I know it's a, it's a done thing in, like, a lot of articles on queer studies to say, like, yes, I'm personally queer and that informs my scholarship. Yep. I've never seen someone specifically say, like, and this is when I first had queer sex in this year. <laughs> 10 out of 10. I don't think my supervisor would have let me do that. <laughs> but, you know, go figure. I don't know, you should have tried. Yeah, you know. <laughs> my next article. Anyway. Yes, the history of the word lesbian comes from lesbos, you know, so on and so forth. But in English, the first uses of lesbian to denote same-sex relations between women dates back at least to the 1730s, which is older than the word gay or queer to refer to same-sex relations. And she quotes a byzantine text that seems to be using lesbian in roughly the same way that Mm -hmm. we use it now yeah so it's one of the most static terms for same same sex identity that i think we have which is really cool which makes sense because it is based on like a classical figure yeah absolutely 
I feel like it made sense in their heads to associate it with a place. They could say like, oh, yes, they do this in the way they do it in this other foreign place. Right. Well, which is where if you'll reach all the way back to our first Pride episode, the word a Florentian came to yes, refer that's to exactly what I was thinking gay of. men, because that is what they did in Florence. We should have kept that. It should have been uh, lesbian and Florentine these past 500 years. I like that. A Florentine. That'd be hilarious. And no, the Italians don't get a say in that because the Greeks didn't stop us from using lesbian. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Shall we continue on? Yes. Okay. So she gets into a little bit about like why she's not using the term lesbian, how medieval identity differs from modern identity. One interesting way that like struck me was a wide variety of sources indicates that medieval people identified themselves less by sexual practice and more by other criteria, willful or repentant, householder or dependent, serf, free, well-born, Christian, Jew. Insofar as there were sexual identities in the Middle Ages, the best articulated might have been those of celibate and virginal, which I think is a very valid point. Or as, for instance, the Romans and the Greeks might consider it top and bottom. I have heard it pitched before that, like, in the medieval period, we should be reading virgin as, like, not just, like, a kind of, like, a trivial fact about someone as it is now, but as, like, a gender or sexual identity. I really like that reading, actually, because I think it brings to light something that was hugely an identifying factor about someone's life, particularly women, because so much value was caught up in whether or not you were a virgin. And I think, and this might have been our last episode, actually, but not not our last episode, but in a recent episode, we talked about the difference between chastity and virginity. Yes, that was the game show. One of the questions was whether maidenhood or virginity is better. That's right. Maidenhood or virginity. And virginity is the willful, like, desire and, like, pureness of heart that comes with not having sex. Right. And you could say that, like, that's an identity that you have... You have identified yourself with. Right. Versus like maidenhood is like, oh, yeah, like you don't put much stock into being virginal. But yeah, you just haven't had sex yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like that argument. There you go. Virginity. And I think that also explains a lot of the emphasis on like only a pure virgin woman can come near a unicorn and and sort of vibes like that or like why a dragon would like come and take a, a virgin maiden away is because i feel like some of these are more more fairy tale than medieval right but like where did we get that idea right and yeah. that comes from having it as a sexual or rather in this case non-sexual identity yeah and so i think i think there's a lot of stock in that yeah i think you could argue that characters like galahad and percival have a lot more in common with, like, your standard-issue virgin saint than, like, other men. 100%. 100%. I like that. Consider that in your next campaign. Maybe maybe virgin is how your character would like to sexually identify. Yeah, there you go. I feel like you could could have some fun with that. And, like, not in, like, a, ha-ha, your character's a virgin way, but, like, in a very deliberate, like, no, this is part of my paladin oath. I have to do this. It's a thing. I only get some holy powers or I only get to have this weapon if I am virginal. And let's point out that that haha, you're a virgin thing is also a sexual anxiety. True. True. Good point. All right. 
Bennett also acknowledges here that some scholars are finding that medieval people operated on a one-sex system that saw the male body as the sole standard, and others that medieval people embraced a two-sex binary, and still others that medieval people played readily with ideas about intermediate genders or third sexes. Are these differences a matter of method or reading, a matter of sources or genre, a matter of competing or complementary medieval ideologies? We cannot yet say. And I think this is very, very important because you'll get a lot of medieval scholars who go back and forth about this. So maybe maybe here we are speaking more to our medievalist crowd and less to our game dev crowd. Personally, my take is like, chill the fuck out. It's probably some of both, all of the above, because people are people. And like, look at the world today. Some people have a two sex binary. Some people are like, cool, whatever gender you want to be, whatever sex you want to be. Awesome. So... Yeah, it probably varied a lot. It's probably all of the above. <laughs> but anyway, her point here is basically like, there's a lot of debate about this. There's a lot of scholarship about this. That's why I'm using the word lesbian-like. And she also points out in, I think it's a previous paragraph now, that we often use modern words to describe medieval realities. Mm-hmm. And normally people don't feel the need to go like, Thomas Aquinas was Catholic. And by Catholic, I mean something somewhat different than how we currently understand it. Right. Because we didn't really have that term until after Thomas Aquinas' lifetime. But like, you can just say like, no, he was Catholic. He was Catholic. He had Catholic ideals. Yeah. There you go. I think the other uh, example she uses is uh, Edward the Black Prince. The kingship he was preparing for is a different kind of kingship than the kingship that Charles Windsor was preparing for at the time she wrote this, and now, I guess, has, although... Has, yeah. I'm not sure if anyone cares and or respects that that much. (laughs) Well, she also uses, like, capitalist. Like, Adam Smith was a capitalist before capitalism existed. Adam Smith invented capitalism. Yeah, but still. It works as an example. Anyway, she gets into a very long discussion of defining lesbian-like which I don't think we need to get into because it, it matters more to use in scholarship than for our purposes here of like, what did queerness in the Middle Ages look like? So yeah, and we are like an hour in. Yeah. So to put it very broadly here, I'm going to read her general definition. So she is suggesting the use of lesbian-like. The lesbian in lesbian-like articulates the often unnamed, forcing historians who might prefer to otherwise deal with their own heterosexist assumptions and with the possibility of lesbian expressions in the past. So basically, you can't just say it's queer. We are defining it within women loving women, sexual identity, things like that. Yet, at the same time, as the term forthrightly names the unnamed, that is the lesbian part, the like in lesbian-like decenters lesbian, introducing into historical research a productive uncertainty born of likeness and resemblance, not identity. So here, again, we're kind of circling around this idea of we can't know for sure how these women would have identified, but we can identify certain patterns, traits, situations, circumstances that they were in and embodied and lived out that are lesbian-like, hence the term. There was a fantastic example that I do want to bring up that kind of gets into how she defines lesbian-like, so I'm going to read that. Certainly, I would think that a woman who never married and shared an emotionally rich life with another woman might be more lesbian-like as a person than one who cross-dressed to follow her husband to war. Yes, but she brings up that example because she listed that as as something that could be read as lesbian-like earlier. Right. 
So it can be lesbian-like, but it's not as lesbian-like. Yeah, she's saying as... like there there are levels. Yeah, basically, like ooh, they were roommates is very lesbian-like. Right, but Polly Oliver probably not. Although there's definitely right. some like gender stuff going on there that's worth looking sure. at, and maybe she counts as lesbian-like for that reason. There we go. All right, that was that was the only other point that I wanted to make. So, do you want to get into the examples? Yes. Can I read the first one? Yeah. In the earliest years of the 15th century, a young woman, we do not know her name, disguised herself as a man and studied at the University of Krakow. Although her story has many literary antecedents, Michael Shank has argued effectively for its plausible historicity. This student maintained her male identity for two years, and when discovered, she was more marveled at than punished. Like most other discovered female cross-dressers in the Middle Ages, she was admired and rewarded for improving herself through a male persona. She became the abbess of the nearby monastery. We have only two words reputedly spoken by this young cross-dresser, and they explain her decision to take on a male persona in clear and non-sexual terms. When asked why she had deceived everyone, she replied, Oh, can you do the Latin? Yes, amore studi. For love of learning. There we go. Which is so cool. I know, that's such a sweet story. That's so cool. And the next part, which I was originally going to quote, I was originally going to read like all of <laughs> the, the whole examples thing. just straight Yeah, across, yeah, but, but there's so much. Yeah, and we were already well in. But Bennett points out how much work this deception would have taken because like the Middle Ages is already a place with less privacy than we have today. They didn't have the same concept of privacy as we did. And she was living in basically the men's dorms. So... Communal bathrooms. <laughs> right. There's a line here. In other words, she likely shared beds with men, disrobed in the presence of men, urinated in their company, and somehow managed through all of this to conceal her breasts, her menstrual blood, her genitalia. Yeah. Which is just impressive. Yep. Yep. Again, me thinking about that little tangent of how, like, women in fantasy books never get on their period. Yeah. I will say, George R. R. Martin did do that one well. I'll give him that one. I do enjoy that he included that. And this, this story is brought up not just because it's a good story, but because it's telling us that, like, okay, there was kind of a space in the medieval mind for women who cross-dressed as men in order to, like attain things they couldn't otherwise like it seems like the the author is more just like impressed like oh she really did like go out and get an education and better herself like good for her mm -hmm. which like that would have been really hard to do and so bennett makes the assertion that hey like if a woman could do this for the love of learning how much more could a woman conceal her sexuality and still have a relationship with another woman or engage in lesbian-like behaviors. There's space for that. Yeah, I feel like if there is at least one presumably identifying as a woman but presenting herself as a man who gets caught, presumably there are more who got mm -hmm. away with it. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. And like you said, it's probably even easier to hide the fact that, like, you're having a relationship with another woman than to, mm -hmm. like, live as a different gender for two years. Also, I would like to state here as a caveat that we are by no means saying that, oh, most women in the Middle Ages were queer. That is not what we are saying here. 
we're not trying to say like, oh, everybody was actually gay. Being or identifying as queer, however you want to say it, is still a minority in today's day and age, which is, is arguably, yeah. Apparently, I just hang around in weird circles then. Mac, you're in academia. <laughs> I'm in game dev. We're constantly surrounded by <laughs> by queer individuals, because guess what? Queer individuals are people. I'm genuinely always surprised when I find out someone I know is cishat. Right? I know these days. But you can go to towns in America, all over the place, where you will not find anybody who identifies that way because, one, they probably don't feel safe in doing so. But two, also because it's still technically a minority percentage of the population. And so by that same, like, standard, by that same statistic, we are not saying that the majority of people in the Middle Ages were queer. If they were, cool, I would love to know that statistic, but by all the stats that we currently have, we cannot say that. So in determining what queerness looks like and what lesbian-like looks like, we're not trying to say, oh, actually, there's this secret medieval history that everyone was queer. We're not trying to say that. That's not what we're arguing. But we are trying to say, like, hey, queer people existed, and what does that look like? This is yeah. this is what that looks like. And, like, probably a bunch of them. Yeah, a whole bunch of them. Yeah. So... I think there is a statistic about how if people actually like recognize that they were bisexual, bisexuals would outnumber both lesbians, gays, non-binaries, and straight people. But our current statistics don't reflect that. It's an estimate. I feel like that would be difficult to prove. But also, yeah, yeah, I would assume that most people aren't on firmly on one end or the other of the spectrum. I would assume the majority of the people are somewhere in between. Yeah. Anyway, our second example. Yes, and readers. Zoe is about to say two names that definitely sound like male names, but they're not. They're women. They're just French. Yes, yes. And, like, remember that there were a lot of male names that are now female names, like Andrea, for instance. That is a male Italian name, and in America we use it as a female name, so. Doesn't it have an S on the end if it's male? It doesn't have to. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... At about the same time that this unnamed Krakow student was first donning men's clothing, Laurence, Lawrence, the 16-year-old wife of Colin Poitevin, Poitevin, Poitevin? Probably Poitevin, but Poit. it's spelled Poitevin. Yeah. Anyway, Colin, his wife, Laurence, sought a royal pardon from her prison cell. She told a story of how, some two years earlier, in her small town of Bleury, she had been seduced by, I, I don't know how to do this one. Jean. I'm, I'm sure Jean. it's Jean. Jean? J-E-H-A-N-N-E. Jean. Wife of Perrin Gour. Yeah, those are the two names I per- meant. Like Perrin. Lawrence and Jean sound like two men, but this is two women. Two men, but yeah, it's Lawrence and Jean. There we go. It could be like, it could be like Jean. Maybe that's where we get that name. In, in the English, English. Possibly. But, like, it's spelled the same way as, like, Johannes. Johannes, yeah. Anyway, the two had walked out into the fields together one August morning, and Jean had promised to Laurence that if you will be my sweetheart, I will do you much good. That is a quote, by the way. As Laurence tells it, she suspected nothing evil, acquiesced, and suddenly found herself thrown onto a haystack and mounted, as a man does a woman. Orgasm followed, certainly for Jean, but perhaps also for Laurence, who enjoyed herself enough to desire later encounters. In subsequent days and weeks, Laurence and Jean had sex together in Laurence's home, in the vineyards outside their village, and even near the communal fountain. 
But eventually, the affair ended, and violently so, when Laurence's efforts to terminate the relationship caused Jeanne to attack her. One wonders if, as in so many other cases, it was this attack, and not the sexual relationship per se, that brought the matter before authorities. Jeanne's fate is unknown. Laurence ended up in prison, where came the document that today tells her version of this encounter. Problematic representation on Jeanne's part there. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Which is a shame. Essentially, Laurence pleas for clemency, she's a good woman, she's forgetful of her sin, and a victim of an unnatural aggressor. I, I think it can be taken as read that the aggression thing is being played up because yes. Laurence is in prison and wants to yes. say, it wasn't me. Right, precisely. So, like, this one's, this one's kind of heavy. <laughs> yeah. But it also is tricky to read because if you are a shall we say, lesbian-like, in a situation where you have enjoyed this other woman's company and then you're like, oh, sh**, like, maybe I'm pregnant, I can't keep doing this, I, like, my husband's gonna find out. Like, pregnant by her husband. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Max, like, wait a minute, the cogs oh, are like, spinning. I'm, sh I'm sure we covered that earlier. No, no, like, but, like, you wouldn't necessarily want to continue on with these dalliances when you're pregnant. You know, that can be very uncomfortable for a pregnant woman to do. And a lot harder to hide. I'll take your word for it. Oh. Anyway, for whatever reason, she wanted to call this off. And I think that Bennett makes a very good argument in saying, like, maybe it wasn't the actual issue of the sexuality. Maybe it was more an issue of, like, hey, you can't just assault people. That's not okay. And we can't know that for sure. But what we do know is that Laurence, because of what the sexual and gender norms were at that time has to, whether she wants to or not, basically, has to play up the idea that, oh no, this was this was unnatural. I, I didn't actually enjoy it. I was seduced. All of these terms basically that you would use in like an affair case. That whole fountain thing was her idea. Yeah, yeah. So again, we don't actually know what that ended up looking like. So, interesting case there. All right, next one. A few days, days, a few decades, same thing, before Lawrence and John... <laughs> I mean, in medieval history. First dallied in the fields outside of Bleury, the city of oh, Montpellier, Montpellier. <laughs> yep. merged its two convents of ex-prostitutes, possibly because in the wake of the Great Plague, both houses had fewer inmates than before. And I want to clarify here... These are nuns now who are ex-prostitutes. Yes. Because I've heard, like, convent used for, like, brothel, like, prostitute work. So just clarifying here, these are former prostitutes, now sisters, nuns. Yes, and we're saying prostitute because the article says prostitute. I know that the preferred term is sex worker. Thank you for clarifying that. I didn't know that. The regulations of one of these communities suggest that it served, as Leah Otis had put it, a social moray rather than a religious purpose. The sisters were not cloistered, they performed modest religious duties, and they could, for all practical purposes, leave whenever they wished. Their house was directed by city officers who sought to encourage orderly behavior among some of the more disorderly inhabitants of Montpellier, but it also served the purposes of the women themselves, charitably sustaining some prostitutes in old age, sheltering others who were truly repentant, 
and providing a transition for still others who used it to move from work as prostitutes to work as wives. The prostitutes and ex-prostitutes of Montpellier were lesbian-like not only in their transgressive sexual practices, but also in their joint living, whether in a city-sponsored brothel or a city-sponsored convent. The historical sisterhood between prostitution and lesbian has been explored for modern times, particularly in a wide-ranging essay by Joan Nessel, but it seems to have escaped the recognition of historians of pre-modern Europe. This continues a bit, but I'm going to stop there. And also yeah. say that this sounds like a nice place to live. Not, not a fan of the city officers. They sound like there might be cops. But other than that, like, this sounds like a good idea. Honestly, I love this little story. It feels very wholesome to me. I realize, I recognize that there are probably many things about this life that were not great. But if you take this as a setting for your D&D campaign or your character's backstory... I think it's totally awesome. Like, you've got a built-in sisterhood. It's like a sorority on a college campus. It's a group of women living together who are, I don't know, they, they take care of each other. They've got a, a safe space with each other. And I also just really like the idea that first it was a city-sponsored brothel, and then it's a city-sponsored convent like of nuns. I just like that the city-sponsored both yeah, I'm not sure if it's the same I love building that. that's the that's the brothel and the convent, but I do like that the city is sponsoring both of these things. Yeah, 10 out of 10 world building. Yank that directly, stick it in your campaign. I love that. Yeah, this little community, sound. it sounds really nice. It does. It absolutely does. I feel if, if I were a woman in the late medieval period, I would want to live there. Yeah, absolutely. And when you, when you think about how, I guess, fucked you'd be as... For instance, a prostitute who is no longer pretty enough or whatever to do that kind of work, then like, what do you do? You don't, you don't have a net. You don't have like a safety net or a social system really that will take care of you because a lot of the people who ran these brothels were not women. They were men who would kick these women out, treat them terribly, be like, okay, screw you, go out, be a beggar. I, I'm not taking care of you anymore because you are no longer bringing me any kind of profit. If you didn't have that kind of a safety net, then this is a perfect solution. And it is very lesbian-like in its concept because you are with a group of women where basically men are not allowed. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for religious purposes. Even though, like, on the surface, it's like, yes, it's a convent, it's... Do do your religious duties, ladies. Cheers. It even to the city's standards seems more like it's like, oh, we want to we want to have a better life for these women. Yeah, we we want to give you a way to transition out of this career if it doesn't work for you anymore. Right. Exactly. And I, I feel like that's a really responsible thing for the city to do. This is the sort Absolutely. of thing governments should be doing. Yeah, ten out of ten. So I don't know. I like it. Nice. Yeah. All right, should we go on to our next one? At the same time that ex-prostitutes of Montpellier were settling into their new community, a widow in Ferrara amalgamated her dowry funds with contributions from other women and purchased a substantial property. Bernadina Sedazzari's intention, she claimed, was to establish a female monastery that would fall, as required by the church hierarchy, under the supervision of a male order. Again, like, 
convents couldn't be on their own. At a certain point, they had to be under male rulership, ordership, whatever. Yeah, I don't think that was always the case. I think earlier. Yeah. 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 Earlier, you could have like standalone convents, but the the later church required that. But in fact, it is likely that Bernadina never intended to submit her community to ecclesiastical control at all. As Mary McLaughlin has put it, I'm just going to call her Bernadina. Bernadina preferred autonomy to authority, it's a quote, cagily preserving the independence of her foundation for nearly two decades and governing about a dozen companions in a regular regime of religious devotions, good works, and common living. When Bernadina died, she named one of those companions, Lucia Mascheroni, as her universal heir, having extracted from her a sworn promise to maintain the community as it then existed. And all of its, like, secret rules within, I'm sure. I think I think that is what's sort of being implied here. Yeah. So take that as you will. For more than two decades, Mascheroni observed this promise with, quote, obsessive fidelity. Bernadina was a strong-willed woman, a pious woman, a woman experienced in both monastic life and marriage, which is fairly common. When women's husbands would die, they, they would sometimes move on into monastic life. And a woman who in midlife made a lesbian-like decision to avoid the governance of men, either that of the ecclesiastical hierarchy or that of a second husband, which I think is often forgotten about, like she could have gotten married again. Bernadina exposed her hopes for her community in pious terms, and we have no reason to doubt the sincerity of her words. But in an age that celebrated female chastity, piety might have also been the medium through which resistance to marriage could be most acceptively and most effectively expressed. The distinction between piety as motivation and piety as explanation might have often blurred in the minds of women who avoided marriage. But as Bernadina's story suggests, it merits further study. For her, piety provided not only a way to avoid a remarriage, but also a method of sidestepping ecclesiastical control, that is, male control, of her holy household. Again, this is sort of like the convent with the ex-prostitutes. This is a community of women living together, basically under female leadership and control. I'm impressed that she's basically spent, she spent 20 years, and then her mm -hmm. successor, successor spent 20 another years. 20 years. Going like, yeah, 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 we're going to have a man involved at some point. Like, we're just we're just finishing up the paperwork. Don't worry about yeah. it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Like, that's amazing. It's that chill. To Don't put it worry about it. Long. Yeah, it's fantastic. And again, it provides a, hopefully, like safe space, intentionally a safe space for women who perhaps were single by choice, single by force, who had lost family, didn't have anywhere else to go, or who chose to live in a community of other women. Yeah. Very lesbian-like. Which, incidentally, this might be one of the reasons Marjorie Kemp falls into this situation, because the first part of her autobiography, which is, that's the only reason we know who Marjorie Kemp is. She was the first woman to write an autobiography in English. Possibly the first person to write an autobiography in English, period. So that's, that's why cool. we know who she was and like what she did. It's because she told us. But the first part of her autobiography is her campaign to like, all right, she's married with children and she does mm -hmm. not want to be. Yep. For whatever reason. Yeah. She wants to join a female religious community. So the first part of the story is her trying to make that happen and like trying to make compromises with her husband and trying to, like, back out of her, like, family entanglement so she can live this religious life. For her, it may have just been about piety. It may have been because 
and it may have been because of some lesbian-like motivation. Mm-hmm. May have been because of the Jesus thing. She could have just really despised her husband. She, yeah, she could have just hated her husband. So I, I have a theological question before we move on. Oh, Lord. Yeah, hit me with it. Okay, Marjorie Kemp. Yeah. Horny for Jesus. Yeah. Does that make her a monster fucker? <laughs> Gosh. I don't think that we could classify Jesus as a monster. I mean, he's not human. No, he's not. He- yeah, but like not all not all non-humans are monsters. I feel like monster fucker is a broad term. Like, it doesn't necessarily imply, like, a moral judgment on the part of the non-human. But the word, okay, no, but the word has connotations, and you know that, Matt. (laughs) I know, I know. You know that. I mean, I think, like, like a a divine-like f***er. She's like a, she's a, she's a supernatural f***er. She's a... Because hmm. like I I'll feel like those, about that one. those angels with all the eyes and wings, like they probably yeah. fall into that category of monster. Yeah, they are monstrous in appearance, are they not? I mean, they're they're divine in appearance. They're mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if you classify Jesus as a monster in the fact that he is a supernatural like creature, then yes. However. I would debate the use of the term monster in this particular instance, as I think it has a more negative connotation of, like, bad supernatural rather than, like, holy supernatural. Fair enough. Mostly, I just wanted to ask you that to see the basis you made. But listeners, if you have thoughts, call in. Yeah, for real. Or, like, what, what would you classify as, like, a... I don't know. Because, you know, you've got, like, Asimar, and then you've got, like, Fallen Asimar, right? So, like, an Asimar, like, whatever, what, like, if you f***ed an Asimar, you'd be in the same category as, like, a Jesus f***er. Yeah. You know? Like, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, like, oh, yeah, an Asimar is a monster. Like, I wouldn't do that. Well, they're different because they're not undead. As Jesus is. I mean, yeah, but are all undead <laughs> things monsters? Bit <laughs> Maggie, why are you making me do this? Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, she's a revenant f***er. Yeah. We'll go with that one. That'll damn you. <laughs> right. let's, let's okay, go on to, to our next one. Fucking <laughs> hell. All right, so the next one isn't a individual story, but rather her describing a demographic, but I'm going to read it anyway because I think it's important. Yes. Because I think for for a lot of, for instance... D&D characters, this applies, because she's talking about single women. At the time of the unnamed student in Krakow, Lawrence and Jean, the prostitutes of Montpellier, and Bernardina Sedetzari, there were several million adult women in Europe who had never married. A few were nuns, but most lived in the secular world, seeking work, shelter, and companionship as single women, one word, the term by which they were known in early 15th century England. In England, in 1377, almost one-third of all adult women were single. In Florence, 50 years later, single women accounted for about one-fifth of women. And in Zurich, 50 years after that, nearly half of all women had never taken a husband. These years aren't intended to show a trend, it's just that these are the years that we have data for. Yep. Also, again, I'm going to interrupt to point out once more that a lot of like people who are obsessed with you know, the the nuclear family and blah, blah, blah. I just want to point out here that there are not 
more single, like, I mean, statistically, there's probably more single women now than there have been in history, but it's not like everyone was freaking married in the Middle Ages. Yeah. There was a large percentage of the population of single women who went around doing their own thing, living their life without men. And I just want to point that out again to like strike that balance of what people think is realism in their fantasy worlds. Yeah, good point. Many of these women eventually married, for especially in northern and western parts of Europe, traditions of late marriage left many women single well into their 20s. Emphasizing mm -hmm. that because I know that's one of those mm -hmm. misconceptions. Yep. From their early teens until the time of marriage, that is for 10, 15, or more years, these women were accommodated within contemporary structures of adolescence, service, and apprenticeship. Which I want to point out here that I had never, me, a medievalist, I had never really considered like single women taking on apprenticeships. Yeah. Like I had never really thought about that. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, but no, that that makes sense because there are crafts that women yeah. do and they're not like some of them might learn from their mothers. But like, mm -hmm. but a lot of them went into trades. I don't think every Brewster and Spinster is going to be like just doing it on her own. Like she probably yeah. had an apprenticeship or an apprenticeship in a, in a non-female dominated trade. Yeah, precisely. Because you, you had women doing that, going out, finding apprenticeships or, you know, maybe their local... I don't know, just throwing throwing a general idea out there. Like, hey, you had this woman who is a merchant with her husband or whatever come along and pick up one of the local girls and was like, cool, you're my apprentice. Now I'm going to teach you how to do the bookkeeping, how to do the trade so that when you find a husband, you can do that for him because you want to marry a merchant or whatever. So there you go. So I don't know. I think this is really cool. I like the idea of like young medieval women going off into the trades, into apprenticeships. And I think that's underrepresented in like sword and sorcery medieval fantasy like media. Because like, oh no, the only thing I can do is get married. And so I'm going to run off and be a rebellious teenage girl. Like, no, give me like a plucky young woman who goes off and finds a really cool apprenticeship to a blacksmith or something like that's what I want to see. Anyway, take that as you will. <laughs> I think a lot of people assume that women's lives in the Middle Ages are more constricted than they were. Like, yeah, don't get precisely. me wrong. That, like, misogyny was real, is real. Women were oppressed yep. back then just like they are now and in some ways more. But people make this assumption that, like, all right, there's misogyny and, and oppression today. Mm -hmm. And 100 years ago, there was worse misogyny and oppression. Mm -hmm. Therefore, 500 years ago, it must it have been five be times as worse. bad. Yep. And that is not the case. Like, people assume they were on yes. a, a system of slowly progressing to be better and better. Yeah. And we're not. We're, that's Things not, change, that's not and they don't yeah. always change in the same way or in the, over the same trends or even for the better. I think a really good example of this, and I just thought of it now and I'm kind of tickled by it. A good example of this is like medieval women particularly Viking women, but medieval women in general, had control of the family's money. Mm -hmm. And in the, what, 60s, 70s, and 80s, a, a woman couldn't get a, a credit card yep. without her husband's permission. So I, w I wouldn't call that progress. You know, just pointing that one out. <laughs> Remember those chests of silver Ale had? Yeah. He wasn't carrying him around with him, was he? He left no. them with his wife. His wife did all that stuff. His wife ran the household. His wife was in charge of the money. He was not over here, 
You know, he occasionally was like, I'm going to give this guy a ship. Is that all right, babe? Like, that was that was what he did. In Saga Age Iceland, uh, women were not only frequently in charge of the finances, not only were they often in charge of the money, but they literally physically made the money because yeah. coins were not the standard of exchange. You mostly just use those in, like, foreign trade or as, as compensation. Yep. The medium of, of exchange, the, the de facto currency, was spun cloth, mm-hmm. which was Goods. produced by the women. Yep. Goods, cheese, things like that. Specifically cloth. Often yes, in the sagas, sure. you'll see something referred to as being worth so many L's, which is a length of measurement of homespun. That's homespun cloth. Like yep. that is the default currency. Yep. So there you go. Anyway, apprentices, thought that was yeah. cool. We are not always on a linear progress of, well, women's rights, but like anybody's rights or progress in general. Pointing that one out. There is no situation in which we are on a linear, uh, just straight linear progress. That's not yep. happening. Nope. Just because things were bad earlier in the modern period does not necessarily mean they were worse in medieval times. They Correct. were different. <laughs> they were different. All right. Anyway, so single women could go on to apprenticeships, trades, etc. And some single women, however, never married. And in late medieval England, and perhaps elsewhere, again, we don't have data for everywhere, these lifelong single women accounted for about 10% of the adult female population. Which is so cool. It's just so cool. And I think alewives would be included in this, I think. Well, often they were... Literally wives, but yes, right. if you are a, if you are a single unmarried woman, brewing ale was a great way to support yourself. Yep. So yeah, that w- that would have been pretty common. Which also means that you would run the establishment, you would run the business, you would probably own the ale house. So you basically own a tavern. Blah blah blah. Point is, there were business women in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Although over the course of the Middle Ages they were slowly pushed out of that business. So by the time the early modern period comes around, women still run taverns, but but the brewing has been completely seized from them. And the women who are running the taverns are often maligned. Yep. Whatever their sexual or affective practices, that's effective as in affection, not effective as in does it work? (laughs) Yes. These single women, those who never married and those who eventually did, those who chose to avoid marriage and those who sought it without success, were lesbian-like in their never-married state. Single women lived without the social approbation attached to wifehood, most lived without the support offered by the greater earning power of a male, and some lived independently, an anomalous state among people who sometimes thought that, quote, and the footnote clarifies this is a quote from the hammer of witches, the Malleus mm-hmm. Maleficarum. I love that. I love that she included this. When a woman thinks alone, she thinks evil. Ridiculous. Yeah, and she mentioned earlier on in the paper when she was talking about heteronormative assumptions that one of those heteronormative assumptions was this 10% of women who never marry didn't do it on purpose. They just failed to marry. Yep. But Which certainly some... Probably some, but, like, there's no way you can prove that that's even the majority, let alone all of them. Yep. So there we go. And that's essentially her article. She gives us these beautiful, beautiful examples and then concludes that basically lesbian-like can allow us to imagine in plausible ways the opportunities for same-sex love that actual women once encountered. And it can allow us to explore those plausibilities without asserting a crude correlation between our varied experiences today and the varied lives of those long dead. 
In this process, of course, we might understand ourselves better, for through exploring likeness, resemblance, and difference with past times, we might better understand the fraught interplay of identity and non-identity in our own lives. And I just really like that overall. Because again, like, why study the past if not to learn more about ourselves as well? Okay, so takeaways from that article really quick. I feel like a lot of it is summed up there, but we can say like, there are a lot of assumptions that we make about the ways women lived in the past that probably aren't real. And there is probably a lot more queerness in the past than is officially recorded in the records. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, and then we're straight on to how do you use this in a game? Ooh, how do we use this in a game? Well, first off, I think that you should use virginal as like an orientation or like quite possibly not a class, but maybe like a paladin subclass. I think that would be fun. I was just thinking it would be an entertaining subclass to have in like an Arthurian inspired. Yes. campaign because like it's a really big deal that galahad is a virgin and i feel like that should be his class yes or subclass i guess because <laughs> paladin's his class what are you oh i'm a paladin of the virginal bond of brothers <laughs> i don't know whatever that looks like but it has to be both like a spiritual and physical thing it has to be like your whole identity right because that's the whole point so i definitely think you should include virgin as some kind of identity in your game. Definitely that. And it, it clearly doesn't come with an alignment requirement because Percival, Percival. is also a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> the worst. I'm pretty sure he's chaotic evil. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe maybe there's like a specific warlock who's like, no, <laughs> you're not pure enough. Like you gotta be like a, a virgin to join the warlock club. I don't know. Maybe. I feel like you could have fun with that. What else can we use? But we already mentioned putting that convent, like just putting yes. it in as a setting. Cause I think it, cause it's nice. I like yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be religious. It could be religious, like the pretenses of religion, but it could also be just like a city run convent. Yeah. And that way it doesn't have like the connotations of like, oh, this is the poor house or this is a women's shelter or this is a brothel. No, like it's a convent. And it's like, oh, of what religion? It's like the city. It's just a city convent. Just a, It's just a group of women. It's religious because, like, it gives it a, a respectable reason to exist. But right. like, the real purpose is to give women who need a place to go a place to go that's yeah. not, like, looked down on. Being exactly. in a convent is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Even better if you have, like, a very powerful NPC who, ooh, ooh, maybe, maybe your virginal paladin is the head of she's the abbess of the convent oh you could bring in bernadina for that yeah get bernadina the the virginal paladin yeah the one who's all whatever like oh yeah yeah we're 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 in the process of getting a man in to handle this (laughs) she's the champion of women i love it i love it 10 out of 10 i mean we did talk about paul the ace cleric who just he has a lot of sexual anxiety He's just uncomfortable with any and all forms of of sex and sexuality, which I think is fun. You can also play with that. Not to imply that all ace people are like anti-sex. We are aware that 
While sex repulsion is a thing, it is not necessarily equivalent to a sexual anxiety, and it is not something that all ace people feel. This is just a specific character concept for this one NPC. I will say, like, if you're going to do it as a joke character, make sure your table's okay with that. If you also want to do that seriously, please make sure that your table is okay with that, because I have heard of some, like, RPG horror stories where people are like, yeah, I, I want to play a character who's not into, like, a bard, for instance, who who wants to be a bard for the sake of performance and music and doesn't want to seduce everything. And some, you know, GMs have it in their head that, no, but the bard is the character who seduces people. And they just, they won't let that player play the character they want to play them. And so if you're going to do that, please make sure that you provide a safe space for your table to do that and or make sure that your table is okay with that. I admit I have made that assumption about a bard in the past, but that had more to do with the player than with the class. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, don't, don't, I think a good rule of thumb is to, like, not assume that any particular class is either going to be sexy or sexualized in any one way or another way. (laughs) Good rule of thumb, I don't know, I just, uh. all right, anything else? Ooh, this just popped into my head. Maybe one of the things that you have at, like, your fancy magic library, or just some, like, someone who is a scholar of queer studies in that world Hmm. i don't think i've ever seen like a scholar outside of either herbal studies or magic and i think it could be interesting to play with the idea like there's gotta be somewhere in a fantasy world some scholar who's like yes well i'm i'm interested in how a succubus would interact with a person who identifies as asexual or like it would just be interesting like what are the metaphysics of magic dealing with sexuality honestly i think gender and sexuality would be a way more complicated topic in the D world oh than, yeah like the real world so like there's there's study material there like lizard folk what does it mean for them to be gender non-conforming <laughs> Do they have genders? Yeah, if you really want to play with that, for instance, like maybe goblins or lizard folk are in a one sex, I guess it wouldn't be a binary, but like a one sex system where their society doesn't see gender. There's just one gender and it's goblin. Like maybe that's what it is. Or maybe they just don't see, like there's a thousand different genders and they're like, cool, whatever, however you want to identify, man. And they get really confused with the idea of male and female. Like how would that play out? That could be really fun for a character or for a world building. Yeah, I've kind of assumed that that's what goblins are like, that you're, that if you try to get a gender identity out of them, they're just like, a what? A what? Yeah. Other things going on, man. Gender is a kind of rock. Yeah, exactly. Like, whatever. Like, who knows? So I think that's fun. I, I do think that's really fun. Other things that I think could be interesting to play with the, the idea of lesbian and lesbian-like in your games more so is, one, obviously, provide an inclusive table, and two, provide all different kinds of gender identities and lesbian and lesbian-like behaviors. Because I think, and even I fall into this trope of, like, cool, strong, buff woman, like, fighter, heck yeah, like, that's awesome, powerful woman, but she's actually, like, super powerful and muscular, or, like, very powerful sorceress, or whatever, like, we fall into tropes of, like, 
what a queer woman looks like or what a gay man looks like or whatever. And so I think it, it would be very, very interesting to have, for instance, Bernadina, who is a powerful abbess, who is a virgin, who runs a convent. And she's like, yeah, you know, a, a bunch of my, a bunch of the sisters here, lesbians, they go crazy. I'm a virgin. Like, that's how I identify. I don't care, whatever. But there's, there's a lot of ways that people identify. So I think create NPCs who, who are like that as well. I think it's also worth noting that since in the actual text, Bernadina is a widow, you could cover like, hey, the fact that she was married to a man in the past, that doesn't necessarily mean anything about who she is now. True. She can still be lesbian or lesbian-like, or she can have like, I don't know, re-identified as a virgin somehow. Yeah. Ooh, that would be cool. There's like a blessing you get. Yeah, sure. Why not? Boom. All right. Anything else? Ooh, women in trades. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. I think we should include more of that. More More, more of that. Yeah. Re-examine gender assumptions about your NPCs. Yeah, absolutely. And as your characters, like, again, I still think it would be a really cool backstory for, like, for a a character to be like, yeah, I, uh, I went and I, I apprenticed to this blacksmith. But she was off doing her own thing and then got kidnapped and now I have to rescue her. And that's my backstory is like, I'm technically just an apprentice, a blacksmith apprentice. That's all I am. That could be really fun. Yeah. All right. Should we go on to our our next? The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Any terminology? Hmm. I mean, technically, this whole article is about terminology, but I don't think it's any that like... You could break out in everyday in conversation. Game. I do like single woman as a class. Yes. I think I think that one you can use. Because that was the term in what, thirteenth century England it was? Fifteenth, I think. I thought it was earlier. Could have been. Could have been around for longer. Yeah. Anyway, medieval. Medieval England, they use the term single woman. Oh, I, I kinda like that. Gentlemen and single women. <laughs> <laughs> you looking for it? No, I've got, I've, I've, I have another suggestion. Oh no! For All right, go for it. Spermatic economy. Oh Lord, Mac! <laughs> how? How? No, no, no! Tell me how our players are going to incorporate that into a game. Mercantilism. Oh my gosh! Are we setting up <laughs> sperm banks in in fantasy? Yes, but the kind where you make withdrawals. Oh my gosh! And investments. Oh. Yeah, investments no, actually, last 18 years. Really bad idea. I mean, technically, this isn't just terminology for a game. It's terminology in general. True, true. There was also the um, sexual anxiety. That's, that's that was just term. good to keep in mind. I feel like that's that's one of those terms that's like it's just useful to have in the back of your head because it recontextualizes a lot of like social assumptions. Yes, absolutely. All right. Don't mess with Bernadina. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Prostitute to none is a viable career path, and you should consider it. Very true. Very, very true. Also, don't assume the gender of the person sleeping next to you when you go to college. Yeah. (laughs) And, apparently, if your classmates aren't paying attention, it's easier than you think to pass as the opposite sex. For years. For years. Yeah. I don't have too much more than that. You know, I wonder if she was actually, like, just an expert at disguise, or if her classmates were just like, no, that's fine, we won't rat you out. 
I don't know, man. I feel like she had to have some kind of close-knit community of people who knew. Yeah. You know? Like, I mean, it's possible that she was just a genius at this stuff and managed to do it on her own without telling anyone for two years. But I feel like it would have been a lot easier if she had, like, a couple people in on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be fair, like, you get up to a lot of shit in college that I think the admin never knows about, so... (laughs) Here is another Street Smarts related to that story. If you get away with something for long enough, people are just impressed. Like they, They won't even punish you. True. They just want to know how you did it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. This feels familiar, but it might just be because I read it when I put it in here. So tell me if this is one you've heard before. Okay. So this is from Leech Book 3, Chapter 2, Bullet Point 2. If there be a mist before the eyes, take a child's urine. Oh, no, we haven't read this one. Nope. (laughs) Definitely have not read this one. And virgin honey. Wait, what does that mean? I think it's like the honey that first drips out of the hive. Hmm, I feel that you could make a bad love poem about that. I'm sure someone has. Hmm. Okay, so a child's urine and virginal honey. Mingle together of both equal quantities. Smear the eyes therewith on the inside. Of your your eyes? Like, of your eyelids? Yeah, I think it means of your eyelids. Like, no, you don't just put it on, like, you don't just do the eyelids. You have to get it on the actual eyes. Ugh, you have to, like, roll it around. Yeah. Hmm. So if there be a mist before the eyes, you might want to just deal with that because like that's this this cure doesn't sound doesn't sound fun. Yeah, I don't I don't think you're gonna want to do that. Also, maybe this is maybe they mean like raw honey because when I googled it, all I'm getting is raw honey. Yeah, but I don't think they processed it the way we do back then. What is what is virginal honey? Oh, I know where to find that. I will look it up in the OED. Ooh, there you go. The OED knows all. That's like that's like one of those, like, you're making that up. That's not a thing. Virginal honey. Uh, it says, originally, honey that is regarded as being of the highest quality or purity. And there's a note. Earlier writers define virgin honey variously as. Oh, boy. Honey taken from comb in which no larvae have been raised. Oh, that makes sense. Honey produced in a colony's first year in a hive. That also makes sense. Or honey which drains from the comb without the application of pressure, which is the one I thought it was. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So there's there's multiple options. Yeah, apparently. Huh. Well, now you know. Yeah. Put it in your eyes. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. We'll leave that one to you, listeners. <laughs> Legally, we have not suggested any such thing. Oh. It is our opinion that you could try this. Yes. There we go. <laughs> Legally, everything we say is a joke. Oh, boy. Anyway, listeners, tune in next time for the second half of our Pride episode because we didn't get to cover basically any of our other articles and we don't want to leave you hanging with all of the fun research that we did. Yeah, I blame Judith Bennett for being so interesting. Yeah, and this was a great article. So let us know if you enjoyed it. Let us know if we went on too many, like, long technical rants. Because sometimes we can get caught up in our own interests and medievalisms and research. So let us know. We hope you found it just as interesting as us. 
and whether or not you did, call us out on it on our social media and join us in Discord to talk about it. But do so accurately and in good faith. Yes, indeed, indeed. And anyway, we will see you next time and join us again for our second Pride episode of the month. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Yeah, I think a lot of that... Sorry, there's a noise outside. Oh. I'm going to see if it fades so I don't have to delete it later. I'm going to go look out the window. Smart. Oh, f- <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> It's a riding lawnmower next door. Oh no. Well, I can't hear it at all. All right. Good. Then we'll 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 ignore it for now and since it's a fairly consistent noise, it should be possible for me to just get audacity to delete it from the background. Okay. Fingers but crossed. What I was going to say is that